0: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and this is episode six in the series covering the New York Times bestseller by Ellie Mestal, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Today, we'll be covering chapters 13 through 15, beginning on page 136 in the hardback edition. Chapter 13 is called Conservative Kryptonite, so let's get started. Ellie opens with the history of conservative courts' attacks on the 14th Amendment. The amendment was ratified on July 19, 1868, and the first challenge came just five years later in 1873, and it was about economic rights. Here's the language from the 14th Amendment as a reminder, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, unquote. Keep in mind, the amendment calls a citizen anyone who is born here. And that language insists that any rights, including economic rights held by any citizen, must be held by all citizens. But SCOTUS disagreed. The case was called the Slaughterhouse Case, and it was decided in 1873, as I pointed out just five years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. The state of Louisiana had granted a monopoly to a slaughterhouse to run all slaughterhouses downstream of New Orleans in exchange for complying with health and safety regulations, and to allow independent butchers to work on their site for fixed rates. That move put some white people out of business, and those white people argued the law violated their 13th and 14th Amendment rights to equal protection from economic favoritism. Well, they lost. SCOTUS ruled that the 13th and 14th Amendment only applied to the slave race, quote-unquote, and regardless of race, the amendments didn't provide for economic equality for all people. Instead. The court ruled that other protections and privileges enshrined in the Constitution, like the First Amendment, for example, only applied to the federal government, leaving state governments free to discriminate and deny rights to their own citizens. Like what? Now, that case was overturned by the early 20th century, though not explicitly, and today most of the Constitution is thought to be applicable to state governments as well as the Fed. But sadly, the argument that the 14th Amendment protects economic equality in addition to political equality did not survive. That's why we don't see poor white people suing for their rights under the amendment, nor do we see black people making antitrust arguments against Facebook. Ellie says the closest thing we have is college athletes seeking compensation or endorsement contracts, but those are repeatedly rejected by the courts. So almost immediately, the 14th Amendment was limited by the court, and it could have been an amazing... Um, thing uh, to stop white-owned monopolies from crowding out black-owned businesses. It could have been, but that's just not what happened. But in 1875, it's important to understand what else was going on at the time. And the 14th Amendment, defenders and civil rights activists had bigger things happening than the Slaughterhouse cases, namely the Civil Rights Act of 1875, a sweeping piece of law that promised equality of all men before the law, And one of the biggest pieces of that legislation was that it allowed people to sue for their rights in federal court instead of having to go to state court, which in the South was controlled by former slavers. Ellie says that bit of legislation would be the last time white lawmakers would give a shit about black people for nearly 100 years. And two years after that legislation passed, Rutherford B. Hayes was installed as president with the help of Southern Democrats in exchange for moving federal troops out of the South, which basically ended Reconstruction. And over the next five years, SCOTUS would overturn most of the 1865 Civil Rights Act, eventually ruling that the 14th Amendment couldn't prohibit private discrimination. So with no protection in the South from either the feds or legislation bolstering the 14th Amendment, the Jim Crow era hit the ground running. With private industry doing all the heavy lifting, the states didn't even have to codify discrimination. But they did anyhow. Quote, because if there's one thing about racists, they're never satisfied with being ahead. Unquote. In 1870, Virginia passed a law segregating schools. Georgia passed a law prohibiting amateur Negro baseball teams from playing within two blocks of any playground or school for white children. Florida passed a law segregating housing for juvenile delinquents. All of those should have been prevented by the 14th Amendment. And in 1892, Homer Plessy bought a first-class ticket on a train from New Orleans to Covington, Louisiana, and he, a black man, sat in the part of the train designated for white people. He refused to move when the conductor told him so. He was kicked off the train and sent to jail. But Plessy was a plant. He wasn't discernibly black, but was classified as a quote-unquote Negro based on the one-eighth rule of blood purity, and he had been approached by civil rights advocates to challenge Louisiana's Separate Car Act of 1890. The 14th Amendment should have disallowed the law, but SCOTUS upheld it, and here's the critical part of the 7-1 majority opinion. Quote, The object of the amendment was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law, but in the nature of things, it could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social and distinguished from political equality, or commingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either laws permitting and even requiring their separation in places where they are liable to be brought into contact do not necessarily imply the inferiority of either race to the other and have been generally, if not universally recognized, as within the competency of the state legislatures in the exercise of their police power. Unquote. Ellie points out there are three competing types of rights spoken about here in this jargon. Political, civil, and social. Now, political rights are the rights to participate in democracy, voting and such. Social rights are the rights to participate in society. And civil rights are the rights to participate in the economy, like owning a home or buying land or having a job. The court here rules that the 14th Amendment only protects political rights. It doesn't say that in the amendment. Quote, according to the logic of this court, black people had the right to participate. They could vote or have a trial or travel on trains, but they have no civil rights. So white people didn't have to sell a black person to a house or hire a black person or pay them an equal wage. Nor did black people have any social rights so they could be segregated and ghettoized or discriminated against at will, unquote that's from Ellie. And the basic logic of Plessy is that these kinds of laws are race neutral, meaning if you don't let uh, black baseball players play with white players, that restricts white teams as much as it does black teams. And that, Ellie says, is a log that conservatives will fall back on over and over and over again. The Plessy, quote, separate but equal concept, unquote, was the basis for the entire Jim Crow era. Modern conservatives may say, well, that's all over now, and the separate but equal logic has been roundly rejected. But modern originalists still hold that the 14th Amendment doesn't protect social rights, which is the core logic of Plessy. And Ellie says the mere existence of Plessy really puts originalists in a bind. Because see, their goal is to limit the Reconstruction Amendments to the intent of the white guys that wrote them. But if that were the case, then modern originalists would have to believe the 14th Amendment allows for segregation and racism. So that's a contradiction. Oh, no, uh, you know, that's been decided. Plus, you know, equal, separate but equal, segregation is over. We reject it. But we're originalists. You can't be both. And you've seen some of these modern originalists struggle with this racist catch-22 during confirmation hearings when asked if Brown v. Board was rightly decided. They struggle with it, because they either have to admit they would love to go back to the Jim Crow era, or admit that sometimes the original intent was just wrong. But Ellie can make an originalist argument against Plessy, too. There's a way to remain an originalist and still know that Plessy was wrong, and Brown was rightly decided, because get this, there's clear evidence that the folks who wrote the 14th Amendment totally intended for it to protect the civil rights of black people. Aside from the Civil Rights Act of 1875... That's the one that was torn apart by the court after Rutherford B. Hayes was installed. There was another Civil Rights Act passed in 1866, nine years earlier, which explicitly protected the civil rights of black Americans. And while that act was proposed in 1866, it could not go into effect until 1870, because according to Congressman John Bingham, that's the same dude that wrote the 14th Amendment, Congress didn't have the power to advance the 1866 Civil Rights Act until the 14th Amendment was ratified because it protected the civil rights of black people. Quote, this is evidence that people who wrote the damn thing literally thought they were protecting the civil rights of African Americans, unquote. Now, smart originalists, quote, cling to the history like a life raft because it allows them to argue that all Brown v. Board of Education did was restore the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and not update that meaning for the modern era. Defending Brown requires originalists to admit that Seven sitting justices who decided Plessy were completely wrong, but smart originalists can point to Justice John Marshall Harlan, the first, and his dissent in Plessy as one of the right ones. Quote, our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. Now that dissent has been fully adopted by originalists. So much so that Antonin Scalia has repeatedly aligned himself with that dissent in Plessy. Scalia even wrote a book. He said, and in, in, in the book, he said, the 13th and 14th Amendments can reasonably be brought to prohibit all laws designed to assert the separateness and superiority of the white race, even those that purport to treat the races equally. Justice John Marshall Harlan took this position in his powerful and thoroughly originalist dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. Unquote. But then Ellie drops the bomb. He shows us the paragraph leading up to Harlan's declaration that the Constitution is colorblind. And it says this, quote, The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country, and so it is, in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. So I doubt not it will continue to be here for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But wait, there's more. Quote, There is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are, with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. I allude to the Chinese race. But by the statute in question, a Chinaman can ride in the same passenger coach with white citizens of the United States. Ellie says the best available 19th century white men were racist assholes. But Ellie says if you really want to flummox an originalist, Don't ask about Plessy or Brown. The smart ones can square that circle. He says, ask them about Loving v. Virginia and if the 14th Amendment protects social rights. That's that third set of rights, not civil, not political, social. Richard Loving was a white man born in Virginia, and Mildred Jeter was of mixed race, part African-American, part Native American, and she was also born in Virginia, so a citizen. They met through a family friend. They decided to get married in 1958 after Mildred had become pregnant. But they couldn't get married in Virginia because of the, quote, act to preserve racial integrity law passed in 1924. And laws banning interracial marriage had been ruled uh, constitutional. They'd been ruled constitutional in Pace v. Alabama in 1883. And every southern state had a law on the books prohibiting it, mainly because interracial marriage threatened white supremacy. Richard and Mildred got married in D.C. because they were allowed to get married there. And they moved back to Virginia to live, and one night, cops broke down their door and quote-unquote caught them in bed together, and they asked Richard who he was sleeping with, and Mildred said, I'm his wife, and the sheriff said, not here, you're not. They were arrested and sentenced to one year in prison, but the judge agreed to suspend the sentence if they left Virginia and promised not to come back for 25 years. Judge Bazile wrote in his opinion, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And, but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriage. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. Which leads me to one of the best best things I've ever read. And I'm just going to quote Ellie here, because this is majestic as fuck. He says, Riddle me this, if God wanted races kept on separate continents, and only human free will flummoxes that divine segregation... Then why do the continents move? Why did God shove the Malay continent right up the ass of the yellow continent, as evidenced by the existence of the Himalayas? Bet you didn't think of that. I bet you don't even know why mountains exist in the first place, you ignorant racist fuck. <laughs> Anyhow, the lovings moved to DC, but were unhappy, and Mildred went back to Virginia to give birth to two of their children. But she missed Richard, so her cousin suggested she write to the Attorney General about her family's plight, and she did. And the Attorney General, who was Robert F. Kennedy at the time, found an ACLU lawyer named Cohen to appeal their case to the Supreme Court. The state of Virginia argued in the case, since a black person and a white person were punished to the same degree, their law didn't violate the 14th Amendment, right? That's that race neutrality thing we were talking about, how uh, not having uh, black baseball players on white teams hurt the white teams just as much as the black teams. It prohibited the same prohibitions, so it's race neutral. Same thing here. Same thing here. They're both punished to the same degree, so it doesn't violate the 14th Amendment. The court unanimously rejected that argument, and they wrote, there can be no question, but that Virginia's anti-interracial marriage statutes rest solely upon distinctions drawn according to race. The statute... Uh, prescribes generally accepted conduct if engaged by members of different races over the years this court has consistently repudiated distinctions between citizens solely based on their ancestry as being odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality unquote so the fact that loving aligned the 14th amendment with the protection of social rights makes it kryptonite for originalist logic quote there is no originalist understanding of the 14th amendment that comports with the unanimous opinion in loving, unquote. Scalia wrote in defense of loving that anti-interracial marriage laws were, quote, designed to maintain white supremacy. A racially discriminatory purpose is always sufficient to subject law, uh, a law to strict scrutiny, even a facially neutral law that makes no mention of race. And that sounds good, but Ellie pulled that line from Scalia's dissent in Lawrence v. Texas, a 6-3 decision that invalidated anti-sodomy laws. So Scalia cited Loving to dissent on Lawrence, and he wrote, the the dissent rests on the fallacy that discriminating on the basis of race is wrong, but discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation is okay. Now, Ellie writes that Loving and Lawrence are functionally the same case. They are logical twins. He concludes the chapter by pointing out the current Supreme Court has more in common with the court in Plessy than the court in Loving. The only difference between today's court and the Plessy court is that the Federalist Society teaches them how to edit out their bigoted slurs. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back with chapters 14 and 15. Stay with us. Hi, everybody. It's AG from the Daily Beans. Hey, this is Kimberly Johnson, host of the Start Me Up podcast. Hi, it's Frangela from The Final Word and Idiot of the Week podcast. Hi, this is Jody Hamilton of the From the Bunker podcast. Hi, it's Mariah and Steve from from How How We Win. Win. And we are joining forces to support the How We Win Fund. The midterms are coming, and the best way we can fight back against the Republicans is to support Democrats in key battleground states. Our democracy is under attack, but we don't agonize. We We organize. organize. Yes, we do. Together, we can protect and expand our Democratic majority this November. We are so close to a Sinna mansion-proof majority in the Senate. Take them out. Join the MSW Media family of podcasts and support the races that need us the most by donating to Swing Left's National Impact Fund. Just one donation goes directly to all of Swing Left's top races. A GOP stoking hate, peddling lies, and suppressing our vote means we need everyone to step up to protect voting rights, civil rights, abortion rights, the environment, constitutional gender equality, our government, our institutions, all the things. Do it. Okay. We beat Trumpism before and together we will make history again. So go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win to donate what you can, share this with your friends and family, and let's show the GOP that the grassroots persistence is here to stay.
1: This This is how we win.
0: All right, that brings us to chapter 14 now. Reverse racism is not a thing. That's what the chapter is called. Ellie opens by telling us he'd be remiss if he didn't point out that anyone can discriminate against most people for any reason or no reason at all. For example, Ellie is prejudiced against dumb people. Not uneducated, but people who have knowledge thrown at them and ignore it. It bounces off their stupid brains, he says. Like if you go to school and have access to professors and books and still come out a Republican, he's prejudiced against you. <laughs> Quote, I can't look at Yale Law School graduate and U.S. Senator Josh Hawley without assuming he's at least one-eighth fucking idiot, you know? Unquote. but there are a lot of similar kinds of prejudice that don't upset the Constitution. Pilots need to be able to see. And the government can't discriminate against a single person, but laws can discriminate against classes of people. And there are only a few protected classes, which Ellie says really upsets the white economic grievance crowd. Protected classes are also referred to as suspect classes. And Ellie says, as much as he'd like to give you a clean definition of what a suspect class is, there is no single definition that everyone agrees to. Generally speaking, suspect classes are groups that can be labeled by their race, religion, national origin, or immigration status. White people are not a suspect class. Quote, white people have not been singled out for discrimination and torment because of the immutable characteristics they have. They're not a minority as of this writing. They're neither discreet nor insular. Unquote. And Ellie goes on to explain that laws targeting suspect classes trigger, quote, strict scrutiny review by the courts and state actions that don't involve suspect classes are given rational basis analysis by the courts. So we have strict scrutiny and rational basis. And he concedes that that's jargony, but it's important to unpack because the courts use it to hide what they're really doing. Starting at the top, federal courts run by lifetime appointed unelected old people, he says, are supposed to assume that most laws are constitutional. They're supposed to. He points out that SCOTUS just sort of granted itself the right to declare legislative acts, unconstitutional in an 1803 case called Marbury v. Madison, where Justice Marshall declared that the Supreme Court could declare a law unconstitutional, even though that's not technically written in the Constitution. Courts are actually supposed to grant deference to legisl- like state legislatures. That's known as rational basis, meaning if a law has a legitimate state interest and it's rationally related to that interest, the law should stand, like seatbelt laws. They pass rational basis review because states have a legit interest in public safety. Then there's strict scrutiny review, where courts empower themselves to look more closely and skeptically at laws. And that puts the burden on the state to show a compelling government interest instead of just a legitimate one like seatbelts. You have to have a compelling government interest. And the law has to be narrowly tailored to achieve that interest instead of just rationally related to that interest. And the courts just decided they can do all that. It's not actually in the Constitution that the courts have to have different modalities for judicial review. But here's the catch, right? Courts really only apply strict scrutiny to two areas of law, the 14th Amendment and the First Amendment. The First Amendment can apply to pretty much anyone, but strict scrutiny of the 14th Amendment only kicks in when laws target members of protected or suspect classes. But that is not all. Courts have also decided there are quasi-suspect classes, which are entitled to intermediate scrutiny. And the first use of that were on laws that discriminated based on gender. And in Craig v. Boren, the court decided that gender isn't really a suspect class, but it's not subject to, you know, regular analysis, but not strict scrutiny either. So the court decided uh, laws that discriminate based on gender are disfavored. And Ellie sums this up by writing, get it? Suspect class triggers strict scrutiny, which requires compelling government interest with laws narrowly tailored to meet those goals. Quasi-suspect class triggers intermediate scrutiny, which requires important government interest with laws substantially related to those goals, and non-suspect classes get rational basis, which requires legitimate government interest with laws rationally related to those goals. And he says all of this is bullshit. Bullshit because it allows the courts to argue that they have some objective reason for their often subjective decisions. Quote, oh no, it's not that I hate women. I just think that their quasi-suspect class status doesn't entitle them to strict scrutiny, so go ahead and file lawsuits objecting to statutes that deny them equal access to health care. I'm just a judge here to call balls and strikes, not make policy. So they can shove you in whatever of those three sections they feel like. So they use this super-subjective bullshit system to decide things they want, the way they want to decide them, while pretending to couch their decision in some kind of objective flowchart. Quote, the Supreme Court excels at using new jargon to smuggle in the same old bigotry. For example, Ellie says, if you ask him, LGBTQ folks are clearly a protected class. But Justice Anthony Kennedy disagreed. Despite his being hailed a tolerance hero for his tie-breaking decisions recognizing gay rights, uh, by that he struck down the anti-sodomy laws in Lawrence v. Texas, he invalidated DOMA in US v. Windsor, he struck down laws banning same-sex marriage in Obergefell, uh, but he never went that final yard to give the LGBTQ plus community a protected class status. And Obergefell was one of the biggest missed opportunities in modern constitutional history to do that. Quote, he was able to stamp out a couple of specific examples of discrimination against the LGBTQ community without empowering the 14th Amendment to do even more. His decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop, by the way, upholding the cake maker as the real victim, would not have been possible if he didn't leave that door open. And that's why the jargon matters. He wraps up the chapter, writing, white people complaining of reverse racism need to help themselves to a number and stand at the back of the line. White people are still too busy legislating bigotry against actual minorities and trying to manipulate the Equal Protection Clause to justify it. Let's, let's fix that first, and then we can talk about various, quote, economic grievances. And that brings us to the final chapter today, a short chapter 15, called The Rule That May or May Not Exist. I hope he makes a Schrodinger's reference. (laughs) And Ellie opens, writing about his two kids, aged eight and five, and how one is a brooding emo, the other is a loyal hothead, and how he's often faced with choosing between them. Quote, one of them smacks the other one during some game neither of them should be playing, and then they come to me demanding redress for their perceived injustices that have befallen them. (laughs) And, And when they raise the possibility that something isn't fair, Ellie says he doesn't take the easy way out by saying something like, well, who said life is supposed to be fair? Or my dad said, oh, "The fair is something that comes to town every year. That his ultimate goal, he says, is to get them to shut the fuck up because they don't have quote unquote problems. They have an assortment of privileged complaints about the rapidity of their wish fulfillment. <laughs> but because Ellie wants the conflict to end as soon as possible, he doesn't guarantee nearly any rights to his kids. And they're not entitled to equal protection either. Quote, children are not a suspect class in my house, unquote. But one constitutional right he does give them, and he tries to give them, is their right to substantive due process. He says, I've decided my children are entitled to a reliable, consistent, repeatable answer every time I deprive them of life, liberty, or the Nintendo Switch. (laughs) But there's no universally agreed upon definition of what substantive due process of law is, though it flows from both the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. But the least controversial definition is that it protects unenumerated rights. So, like, even though the Constitution doesn't explicitly protect the right to see, gouging someone's eyes out would violate the Due Process Clause in the Constitution. It's about fundamental fairness. Substantial due process makes more sense when you compare it to other kinds of processes, like procedural due process. Now, procedural due process only deals with whether the process is fair according to its own rules. An example, you take a number at the deli, the procedure is... You get to go next when your number is called. But if you're at a deli that doesn't call numbers, but rather puts them up on a screen, and you have your eyes gouged out, does the deli still have a fair process? Procedurally, yes. Substantively, no. Quote, at the very least, arguing that I was afforded due process by the screen I can't see would be a cruel joke that only Antonin Scalia would find funny. And since substantive due process demands actual fairness, and not just technical fairness, conservatives hate it, They also hate unenumerated rights, like when we hear the word abortion isn't mentioned in the Constitution. Quote, conservatives are always worried that protecting too many rights might one day lead to a society that's fundamentally fair, unquote. But there is kind of a point here, he says. There has to be some limit. And this is a great piece of writing, and I'm just going to read it from Ellie. He says, I don't have a fundamental constitutional right to, say, have consensual sex with my mother, right? Surely the same principle that prevents the state from gouging out my eyes does not require that the state recognize motherfucking marriages. But you don't have to go all the way down that slippery slope to understand the problem of unchecked substantive due process. And Ellie cites a case from 1905 called Lochner v. New York. And this one's uh, a biggie. This case was about a law called New York's Bake Shop Act, which limited the number of hours bakers could work to no more than 60 hours in a week and no more than 10 hours in a day. Lochner allowed one of his bakers to work more than 60 hours and objected when he was fined under the statute. The court ruled five to four that the law took away the liberty, quote, of a worker's right to work himself to the bone for capitalist paymasters. And for the subsequent 25 years, courts used Lochner to invalidate over 200 labor regulations. That time period is known as the Lochner era, But in 1937, FDR announced a plan to pack the court with justices more amenable to his New Deal, which had worker protections. That same year, Justice Owen Roberts broke with Lochner and sided with the liberal justices to uphold the constitutionality of a minimum wage law. For a long time, folks on both sides of the aisle agreed Lochner was wrongly decided. And one could argue that during the civil rights era, the court went out of its way to avoid mentioning Lochner or using the phrase substantive due process. And that's a classic liberal mistake, Ellie says. Quote, Conservatives used a tool for evil, so instead of using that tool for good, let's never use tools. Unquote. But conservatives will say Lochner was wrongly decided, Uh, but out of the other side of their mouth, they'll continue to use it as logic to conclude corporations are the only people who have rights. And Ellie says that if conservatives had any argument for limiting principles to substantive due process, he'd listen to it, but they don't. They really only have one thing that they do, which is limiting principles on who should benefit from it. Quote, for my part, I'll keep telling my children that substantive due process is a thing. I will keep giving them their right to fairness, unquote. And he ends the chapter with a story about this, about his two kids playing Minecraft, and how the five year old likes to play in creative mode, where you can't die, but the eight year old likes survival mode, where many things can kill you. So the older one, the eight year old, who likes survival mode, came up with a deal that they would spend Uh, They have an hour to play Minecraft, and they would spend a half an hour in creative mode and a half hour in survival mode. And Ellie says the eldest even agreed to let the youngest take his creative half hour first, which made him feel particularly magnanimous and smug. Now, when Ellie overheard this deal going down, he ran in from another room and said, no, the youngest has a right to enjoy his video game time without getting murdered, because it's important that they both understand that technical equality... Is not the same as fairness, and it's sometimes even the opposite of fairness. Quote, I'll do whatever I can think of to make sure they grow up to be anything other than like Clarence Thomas, unquote. And that's the end of the episode today. There is also an episode of Mueller She Wrote out. You want to check that out as well. I'll be back tomorrow with the Daily Beans from D.C. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote Blue over Q. I've been A.G., and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reader and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.